I'm releasing this episode on Thanksgiving 2017. I just hope it's not a turkey. This is the Veteran Wargamer. This is the Veteran Wargamer. I am your host, Jay Arnold. Welcome to episode 29. We talk with Chris Arnold about our history of designing games and a few challenges game designers face. If you haven't already, I invite you to try out an audiobook or two via Audible. Their app is easy to use on your smart device, and their storefront makes it super easy to find books, lecture series, and other audio entertainment. My recommended book for this episode is Communication Failure by friend of the show Joe Zija. It's a mix of military sci-fi, humor, intrigue, and periodic kicks to the face. You can receive a free audiobook just for trying Audible. Don't like the service? Cancel at any time. Tell them I sent you by going to audibletrial.com slash tvwg. That's audibletrial.com slash tvwg. As always, the link is in the show notes. Up next, my discussion with Chris. I'm joined today by my brother, Chris Arnold. Hello, Chris. Howdy, Jay. I I wasn't going to talk about pastries today, but it is Thanksgiving week here in the U.S. and of course, for many people, that means pastries. Yes, definitely. So, so let me throw this out here. And this, you know, you know my view on this already. But let me throw this out All here. Right. Now, now pumpkin pie is a much loved and revered. Uh, pastry, baked good, whatever you want to call it, uh, especially around Thanksgiving and the holidays. Yes. And my contention is, and I, I agree with noted humorist Garrison Keeler, pumpkin pie is an exercise in mediocrity. The best pumpkin pie you've ever had isn't too far off from the worst pumpkin pie you, you've ever had. That, that's, a, that's fair to say. That being said, I love pumpkin pie. Oh, yeah, especially with plenty of uh, whipped cream. Yeah, real whipped cream, none of that cool whip crap. The the ready whip stuff in a can is acceptable because it is whip it is actually cream. Right. But if you want to do it right, if you want to do it right, what you do is you get your heavy whipping cream. Yes. You get a metal or glass bowl. Right. You set the metal or glass bowl in your freezer for a couple hours before you prepare the whipped cream. Correct. Yes. Make stiffer peaks. All right. You go ahead and, and when you're ready, you go ahead and pour your whipping cream in the in the bowl, and then set your your hand mixer to the highest setting it has, and just go to town on right. it. Right. Now, while that is happening, though, you're adding a little bit of sugar, not a lot, but just a little bit of sugar and just a dash of vanilla. Yes, absolutely. And that is going to be the preferred topping for any pie that you might serve during your Thanksgiving feast. Yes, absolutely. So you've got your, you've got your, uh, your pumpkin. Mm-hmm. You got your apple. Right. Pecan possibly. Now that's a favorite around here because that's my father-in-law's favorite kind of pie. Right. And, and you're gonna, you know, you can liberally apply your whipped cream to any any of these pies. Yes. Now the thing with now, pecan pie is that you got to be careful. 
because with pecan pie, a lot of people will say, hey, that's a good-looking pecan pie, and cut into it, and it's just a top layer of pecans. The pecans aren't mixed in with the, uh, with the rest of the custard, and that's the way it should be. Pecans all the way through. Yeah, pieces, anyway. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... I mean, there's not much... There's not much else you could say about that sort of thing. Right. Um, I'm trying to think of some other... Now, your mincemeat pie, that's usually reserved for Christmas. It's mm-hmm. more of a Christmas thing than a Thanksgiving thing. Um, I'm thinking I'm thinking you could get away with it at, at Thanksgiving, but yeah, it's it's not it's not mandatory and it's certainly not preferred at Thanksgiving. Pumpkin right. is definitely preferred at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Now, uh, a friend of mine, uh down in Austin, Russell, he prefers a sweet potato pie. Yeah, it's acceptable. Yeah, it's still orangish. <laughs> yeah, it's still orangish. It's it's acceptable, I guess. I've never been a big fan of them myself, but you know, to each his own. I'm not gonna begrudge anybody their their sweet potato pie by any means. Right. No. But uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, um, the pumpkin roll that your wife makes. Oh is yes. Pretty is pretty darn good. Yeah, that's, that's that's a that's something very nice. Yeah, that that was and actually a, uh, that was a have to have every time we went to to visit uh, uh, Dad at uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas when uh, Uncle Corky came, we had to make yeah. almost a second one just for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, he deserved it. Certainly, he did. So, um, yeah, actually, before we started recording, I pulled a cinnamon roll apple crumb pie out of the oven oh that that's and what that delicious. means is you get the pre-made cinnamon roll dough out of the tube uh-huh. and roll it thin and then use that as your pie crust oh nice and then the apple filling and then you've got a, a crumb topping on on top of that yeah then the when you're ready to serve or when you're about to serve it you pull out the uh, frosting tin out of you know from the packaged from the packaged uh, cinnamon rolls right. and you uh, dribble that over the top of the pie oh that sounds good yes so yeah. <laughs> so not not much in the way of controversy you Brits don't know what you're missing out on uh, when it comes to holiday pies and whatnot. I mean I, I don't know what you folks eat probably like you know Spotted dick or some such nonsense. Yeah, spotted dick or something, which sounds way too rude for words. And (laughs) I need to have the beep button ready for that. But But anyhow, but no, we're here to talk about coming up with your own game rules and house rules and that sort of thing, which by and large for our collective gaming history has been a a central point of how we pursue this hobby. Definitely. Definitely. It, it always seems like uh, we get a hold of a set of rules and very rarely do we not immediately think about either A, how can we make them in our minds better or how we can uh, shoehorn something else that's not exactly in on topic such as uh, sci-fi uh, mask on something else. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in, 
I mentioned our, our first foray into this in, in our first episode when we took the plane pieces and combat rules from Axis and Allies and applied them to the uh, Scotland Yard map. Yes. I want to say it would have been like I would have been like nine, making you thirteen or so. That sounds about right. Somewhere along those lines, yes. And I'm I remember having fun with it. I don't recall it being a being a particularly good game. No. But we had fun with it and that's what counts, right? Yeah. It's kind of akin back to uh on one of your previous episodes you were talking about, I think it was with uh, Mike Hobbs. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily the rules or the game that you're playing, but the people you're playing with. I don't, I don't know how else to put it aside from it. It was a thing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, at nine and thirteen, you know, what more are you going to do? I mean, yeah. At no point in time were we prodigies. <laughs> oh no, certainly not. Now I'm kind of getting ahead of myself a little bit. I thought of this topic because in the latest. Uh, War Game Soldiers and Strategy Magazine, issue number 93, uh, they put out a rules challenge to, uh, as and to quote them, to lay down the gauntlet for all you budding rules writers out there. Your challenge is to come up with an aesthetically pleasing war game that can be played out over a single evening. It must be portable and no larger than a 2 foot by 2 foot footprint when set up. Any terrain should be able to fit in a shoebox, file box, or equivalent sized container. It must contain figures, although they can be of any scale. The cost for the figures must come in at 30 pounds, new or under, although we will assume you're, that your measuring devices, dice, bases, flock, and paints are things that you have already and do not need to be counted. You don't need to split hairs over receipts in every last penny. Boxes of figures can be sensibly split. E.g., you use half a box of plastic figures and budget this as half the price of the box. The rule should be able to fit on two pages of the magazine, so a word count of about 1,600 words. It should look eye-catching and visually attractive. There is no budget for the train, but cheaper and scratch-built train will be looked on positively. It should have some replay value. Games should last between 20 minutes and 3 hours. Games will be judged on innovation, artistic merit, playability, and portability. The games will be judged by Guy, Jasper, Mark, Rich, and Rick. The judge's decision is final. The best entries will be featured in WSS. The winning game will win a year's subscription to WSS and be published in the magazine. Entries should be sent to the editor, blah, 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 blah. Final deadline is March 1st, 2018. So plenty of time. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say there's plenty of time. I mean, <laughs> well, it's not, you're you looking know, at... It, it's not, you know, two and a half weeks from now. No, it's three and a half months, which isn't really a lot of time. No, no, but... So there's some, there's some, some there are some suggestions here in what someone might want to do, and... And there's, I mean, there's certainly, there's certainly something there, if you would want to get on top of that. Now, with that in mind, of course, my mind immediately started racing, and I, I'm, I'm gonna throw my hat in, and I, I'm dragging you along for the ride. Fair enough. To, to put it mildly. <laughs> Fair so, enough. Yeah, basically, basically, what's going to happen is I'm going to work on something I was going to work on anyway, and that is a uh, skirmish game, sci-fi skirmish game, 
Uh, so five to ten figures at the very most per player. And it's going to be the the land, land side or station side, however you want to put it, actions of our spacecraft crews that are going to be plying the, the spaceways and whatnot. And for for our Starship games, we're going to use Free Jumper from Sam Mustafa. Mm-hmm. You and I had a opportunity to get that to the table finally. Um, I liked it as a two-player game. I'm pretty sure I'm going to love it as a multiplayer game. Oh yeah, the dynamics with uh, going to multiplayer is going to make it definitely fun. Not, not just in the game play itself, but you know the building out of the ship in the first place. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a good time for sure. It's it's going to be one of those things that I, I can definitely see it won't be for everybody, but it'll. I think the the crew of guys that we normally have or will have in in this type of situation, it's going to be right up their alley. Oh yeah. So no no fear there, and it's a relatively low bar to entry which helps sure um, because you just have to have one ship model per player right and that's going to be pretty handy for us so anyway so that's what that's what I'm looking to do kind of a sci-fi skirmish thing uh, the terrain that I'm planning is already going to integrate into uh, the terrain I've already started building for our space station games uh, 28 millimeter space station interior uh, I've been working on the fiction uh, background for this setting for a little bit already. I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, especially when we get the multi-dimensional space battles and well, it's in a space station, so you can't exactly call it ground battles. But anyway, sure, <laughs> it's it's going to be interesting to say the least. So, with that in mind, I guess we could kind of go down a litany of the things we've worked on but rather than do that rather than just rehash a, a litany of what we've done we could probably hit on some high notes real quick Yeah. but I think maybe we ought to talk briefly about what it is we like about making our own rules if that makes sense yeah absolutely I, I, know, I'm, I know I'm diverging from the from the show notes a little bit but hey, it's your show um well, it's not just that. I think, I think a litany of stuff that people aren't ever going to see is it doesn't do anybody any good. So, um, now just a couple of high notes. Now you've you've actually got a couple of you've got a couple of games that were, in one way or another, not quite publishable, but close to getting there. Mm-hmm. I mentioned first Ocean Thunder, which is a Naval World War II naval combat game. Yes, which received a lot of favorable reaction at a number of conventions that you went to. Yes, we've tried to. I guess we haven't really tried hard enough. It's one of those Yoda things, you know, do or do not. There is no try. I, I definitely think there's something there, and it could be. You could have something there if, if you were to get off your duff and do something about yeah, it. Yeah. Um... It's been hanging around for, gosh, what, close to, getting close to 20 years. 
now? No, try 25. 25? Yeah, wow, yeah. Yeah, we're getting close to 25, maybe even more. Um, well, think about it. You first started working on it when you're working in the town, living in the townhouse in Lee Summit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it just, and just ha- briefly how that came about is I picked up, uh, I've always had a, a thing for World War II Navy. I, I don't know why, uh, but I've always thought it was kind of cool. And I picked up the game General Quarters 2. And to, to play it for the first time with uh, Chris Copeland, we pulled out the Axis and Allies, not miniatures, but Axis, the actual Axis and Allies playing pieces from the board game. And we started playing it and realized it's not exactly what we wanted. So we immediately started making changes and it came to a point of like, we're changing this so much, why don't we just start from scratch? And we put together something uh, playable enough to take to a now defunct gaming convention in Kansas City named Skirmishes. And that first year, we had s- such a positive reaction to the game that uh, the game runners or the convention runners came up and said, "Hey, would you mind adding a couple of more, a couple of more sessions because people really are digging your game." And we did, and actually uh, won best of show that year. So we can, I've continued to work on it off and on for the you know, past, now going on 25 years. It's to the point where it could almost be published if I just uh, ironed out a couple more things and had someone who actually knows how to uh, properly write look it over and put together some, some artwork and whatnot some stuff like that but yeah it's it's been there it's it's probably my biggest non-accomplishment in gaming <laughs> that I've got <laughs> non-accomplishment in gaming okay then. <laughs> there's there's a lot of non-accomplishments in gaming and within eyesight of where I'm recording right now that's why I said it's my biggest <laughs> yeah fair enough Fair enough. I definitely think that's something worth examining. I've got, you know, we both have a couple other projects we're working on also. Yeah. Um, you know, as far as rules writing is concerned, we're both on the Ambush Alley playtest team. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only that, but also have a published scenario. Yes, we do. In the uh, Ambush Alley or Force on Force uh, Special Operations book. Yes. Um, and uh, I've actually got an editing credit for the Mogadishu book for for uh, Force on Force. And these were these are both these, you know, all these products were published by Osprey. You know, when Ambo Shelley had their had their uh, period with Osprey. Right. Really, I guess what it comes down to is now, me personally, I don't have anything as expansive or complete as Ocean Thunder. I've got a number of different projects under a number of different names that. Uh, basically litter my <laughs> my gmail my gmail drive you know little game fragments of various concepts and for lack of a better word you know some ideas that I've sketched out that I've got in place the closest thing I've got to something as expansive as, as Ocean Thunder is my zombie game called Send More Brains yeah and that started life when 
I went to the Egyptian Campaign Convention in Carbondale when I was going to SIU, Southern Illinois University, and played the board game Zombies for the first time. Yeah. And I kind of wondered aloud to you and another guy about, you know, how cool would it be instead of using these kind of crappy 20 millimeter figures, you know, vaguely 20 fil- 20 millimeter, 172nd, whatever you want to call them, uh, plastic figures, and replaced them with proper 28 millimeter figures and proper terrain and whatnot. Right. And that sent me down the road of Sidmore Brains. Yeah. And that unfortunately. That is a modification of the Trinity Battleground rules that White Wolf Publishing had published, mm-hmm. which was part of their Eon Trinity uh, universe. And it was a, a pretty effective little tabletop game. Yeah. And uh, it turned into... And I, I took I took Sin More Brains to a couple of conventions and people had fun with it, but you know that that's as far as it went. And that's really as far as it could go, being... Being a game derived from somebody else's rules, I guess. Right. So, where we are now is, you know, developing developing rules for our own use, admittedly, but with quite a few ideas that we've kicked around already. And some might be derivative, that's alright, but, uh, you know, you know, plagiarism is the sincerest form of flattery right <laughs> so, um, so there's a couple of ideas that we're we're shamelessly borrowing from other games but you know we if we didn't admire them we wouldn't be stealing them I guess is what I'm saying exactly so, yeah it's um, there's a there's a passage in the art of wargaming by Peter Perla in which he says that you know, essentially plagiarism is, is how it gets done uh, when it comes to war games rules. What some folks might not know is that when it comes to a rule mechanism, you can't you can't patent or copyright a rules mechanism for a tabletop game. You can copyright the specific wording used, but that's as far as it goes. Right. Um, so, for example, if I wanted to come out with a purely derivative version of Warhammer 40,000 called something completely different. Let's, you know, let's call it, you know... Battle Wrench 2K. No. <laughs> something not quite as... Not as derivative, derivative as that. Yeah, not quite, you know, sci-fi battles, if you want to call right, it that. Right, right. And everything was, was the same except the wording and you know, the characters, you know, so instead of Space Marines, you've got Star Rangers and and that sort of thing, you know. Instead of, you know, you've got the, you know, you've got the Astra Guard instead of the Imperial Guard or what have you. Right. Um, you know, you just change all the names and come up with your own imagery and you're good to go. Legally speaking, no one's going to buy it because it's obviously derivative, you know, why you buy know, that take a whole can... cloth from Warhammer forty thousand? Right, you know? exactly. But anyhow, so the the whole has to be greater than the sum of its parts. Basically, is is what I'm getting at. It. If you're going to use ideas that are present in other games, you basically need to come up with innovative ways that they interact with one another. Right. And you know that little bit of a tweak uh, might give it the the an appropriate flavor that helps. You know, helps to make it 
its own system and and it can be something simple you know it could be something simple just you know in a in a in a conventional game you know that might be you know take a game like black powder black powder for example you know it tells you right in the book you know these these rules are designed to be kind of a a framework upon which you can make some slight modifications to suit a particular period during the black powder era right you know cuz they're talking everywhere from you know the wars of religion and english civil war up to you know just about the boer war you know that's a good 250 300 year period that this one rule system somewhat covers but you've got to make some small tweaks here and there to various uh, to various unit stats for example or or uh, unit profiles to make it work mm-hmm and when you're talking rules mechanisms, it's kind of the same thing. You know, a, a game, a game that's designed primarily, for example, for World War II. In certain, you know, if it's specifically designed for playing in in the Desert War in North Africa, you know, and it and it's really finely tuned for giving that type of experience, you're gonna have to make some tweaks to it to play, you know. Northwest Europe in the winter of 1944. Right. You're you're just gonna have to, and and by the same respects, you're gonna have to make some tweaks if you want to play, you know the, the China Burma and India theater. As well, you know, because they are, granted, it's relatively the same time period, but you've got some very different experiences, some very different force structures, uh, different types of missions, completely different types of equipment, etc. Right. Yeah. Definitely. So, f- so finding those places where you need to tweak them—that's part of the challenge, you know. And one of the easiest and hardest things to do to a rule set is take a rule set and then apply some other genre to it, as I like to say, as a veneer. Right. Um, one thing. You know, one thing I've run into is I, I got it in my head that I was going to take Henry Hyde's Shot, Steel, and Stone and put a fantasy veneer on it. Well, that's all well and good, except for Shot, Steel, and Stone is de- <laughs> designed for the horse and musket era. Yeah. And, you know, ranged weapons are going to act quite a bit different in that era than they are in a classic high medieval fantasy realm. Because, well... If we use real medieval combat as our as our model, then you know the ranged weapons are going to behave differently because in real life they did behave differently. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and you've got a a number of you know you've got a number of differences in weaponry and relative armor rate level and that sort of thing that you don't have in horse and musket era. Well, you do to a certain extent, but not as varied as they might be in in a high medieval uh, fantasy type setting. So there's so that needs to be taken into account. Along same along lines as uh, putting a uh, sci-fi veneer on World War II, like uh, uh, Chain of Command. Right, and that's something that some friends of ours are working on also uh, as a sci-fi uh, veneer for Chain of Command, because Chain of Command by itself is a great game. But there's a few realities in that rule system that aren't necessarily going to apply to science fiction. Um, you know, for example, you know, armor. 
you know, a lot of science fiction rules take into account the possibility of having powered armor or even partial armor. Yeah. You know, um, well, heck, even you don't even have to talk about science fiction when you're talking about, you know, just bring it 70 years in the future. I mean, granted, what we have now would have been considered science fiction in 1945, but, you know, the relatively lightweight body armor is going to be a lot more effective in protecting troops than, you know, just the simple steel pot that they had in 45. You know, just just right off the bat. Yeah. You know? Yeah, my, my kit had two extra large plates, one for the front, one for the back, plus two small plates over the basically riding on my kidneys. And... You know, those are ready to take a 7.62 millimeter projectile at close range. So, you know, right off the bat, you're you're working with, you know, completely different parameters of survivability than a World War II soldier would would uh, experience. Right. And that's before you get into stuff like you know, all kinds of crazy communication and command and control apparatus and targeting lasers and, you know, everything else. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a simple thing. You gotta you gotta know what you're talking about and you gotta get your you gotta know your onions, as as Henry would say. Yeah. And be able to make those decisions and know where to tweak those rules uh, to make them feel right for this other period. Because you know it's it's simple enough to say, hey, I like how those play. I want to I want to see how it's going to work in some other period. Well, you got to know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And but that's not to say that you can't take pieces, you know, <laughs> pieces from different games and apply them in in new ways. You know, that's that's certainly a challenge. That's certainly a challenge. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent that that at least for me, is kind of what makes it fun in the hobby, is taking a set of rules that you really dig and that's outside of a period or a genre that you really, really either A, love, or B, love and know a lot about. And, you know, the fun is seeing how you can manipulate the rules to fit that genre uh, to have a fun game for you and your friends yeah and, and the and for me at least the process itself is fun yeah exactly that's what I'm talking about it's it's yeah the the actually getting down and doing it and brainstorming and thinking about it and bouncing it off of uh, you know your friends and and whatnot saying hey what about this and We've done it over and over and over again, and very rarely has it actually seen the light of day, <laughs> other than yeah. maybe once on a table. Yeah, we we've got a bad habit of getting great ideas and trying them out and seeing that they don't work or that there's they're more more work than they're worth to to make you know make playable. But that's okay. I mean, it's I think it's an ex, it's a good exercise to undertake if for no other reason than if for no other reason than it allows us to exercise our hobby in in a creative way. Yeah. And and again, it's it's one of these things that 
I'm going to trot this out just like I do almost every episode. There is something for everybody in this hobby. Yeah, definitely. And I get a significant amount of enjoyment out of thinking about how how to make things work in games. Yeah. And I really when I was when I was working in Springfield, driving an hour and a half one way to work, an hour and a half back home every day, you know, 3 hours of road time gives you a lot of time to think about these <laughs> these types of things. Yeah. And uh it I kind of miss that time, but at the same by the same token, I mean you you get pretty brain dead at the end of oh, an yeah. hour and a half drive on the way home, but no, it's it's definitely something that I continue to do and when I've got a really fun project in mind, I can spend I can spend hours in a given day thinking about how this is going to react, you know, how this one facet of a game I'm working on is going to react with an or interact with another facet. And uh, without getting into too much detail about what we're working on, uh, you know, I've, we've really been giving a good deal of thought to activation because we don't want to have the same old the same old activation that you've you've seen in in games past but yeah. at the same time we don't want we don't want you go i go by any means oh God, but no. we want to we want to mix up the integrated turn sequence somewhat but we want to have we want to have something that is slightly slightly unpredictable but you know so that you've got some some level of friction but we don't want it to be frustrating either Right, exactly. You know, I love friction in games, but at the end of the day, there there comes a time when friction becomes frustrating. Yes. And in the real world, it, it can be frustrating, but, you know, I don't want it to be game-stopping. Right. For right, lack of a Because we're doing term. this for enjoyment. Right. Life is right. frustrating enough. <laughs> yeah. Believe me. <laughs> I, I want to have fun. But I don't want it to be easy, right? Yeah, and and it it needs to be it needs to be a challenge certainly. Um, but activation, I mean, that's one of those things that has gotten. You know, activation is is one of those aspects of game design that has received a lot of attention recently, and for good reason. Yeah. You know, it's um, more and more recently there have been some more innovative concepts brought out. Um, now, card-based activation has been around for a while. Uh, you know, in the original card activation systems, you know, if you take a standard poker deck, 52-card poker deck, not counting the jokers, and you draw a card, and a unit or units might be keyed to a particular card type. You know, your ace of spades, jack of diamonds, seven of club, etc. That's a perfectly tenable system. It can give you some, depending on how you set it up, it can give you some pretty interesting results. And again, depending on how you set it up, it might be a matter of okay, you know, whenever every everybody's going to get to go at least once. But you know, maybe that Joker, if you draw that Joker, it's going to force a shuffle. Yeah. And you know, there, there are a lot of interesting things you can do with a card deck when it comes to activation. You know, you can set it up so that certain units activate on multiple cards. 
you know, if, if you've got a uh, a unit that is fast moving or is able to react quickly, you know, instead of just having one card type keyed to that unit, you might have multiple card types just by, you know, just by example. Right. So there's a lot you can do with that and it's it's worth investigating. I I I think I think you go I go where I move all my stuff, you move all your stuff. It's I can't think of many rules systems. Well, there are quite a few that still use it, but I can't think of any that have been that have come out recently that still use it. Right. Or at least brand new on the scene that still use it. Flames of War has been out for what fifteen years now, at yeah. least. I can't think of anything newer than Flames of War that's you go I go. I'm sure there's something out there, and someone's gonna let me know, and that's fine. You know, let me know when I'm wrong. I appreciate that. You know, the various incarnations of Warhammer. You know, those are those are definitely you go I go. But again, they they first came out you know 30 35 years ago so that's yeah definitely nothing new under the sun there yeah nothing new there and that's okay um it serves its purpose i'm trying to think um is war machine and hordes are those are they you go i go or are they alternating i think they're alternating aren't they they are alternating i i don't remember off the top of my brain how they activate but uh-huh. it's not a all my stuff goes and all your stuff goes. Yeah. Um, because y- you, if there are certain things that you can do with certain, the synergies between characters allow you to yeah. build towards a massive uh, attack bonus type thing with different uh, yeah. characters and whatnot. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, all those, that's all true. I, yeah, I I mentioned primarily activation systems because that to me activation seems to be the most interesting part of it. The the second most interesting part is how morale is handled, and yeah. then to a lesser degree actual movement, and then funnily enough, the least interesting part of of game rules to me is combat adjudication. Yeah. I'm I'm more interested in how the units activate and how the units get motivated to do what they do than what it is they do. And it's kind of right. what <laughs> it's kind of weird cuz when building a model kit, I want to build the weapon systems first. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that's that's how I've always been. Hey, tank model build the gun. So, right. And well, um that's the important part of of the model. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... But, I mean, seriously, though, I mean, how you figure out who got hit and how badly and whether or not they save, that's... I don't want to say it's of secondary importance, but it's the least interesting to me. It's still interesting, but it's the least interesting to me. Right, because, in all honesty, it's... There's only so many ways you can adjudicate combat. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's unless you, know. you want to get really weird and you know you start introducing some type of some type of manual dexterity 
concept like you know you're flicking little paper footballs at at your opponent's <laughs> figures or something like that um which is okay there's nothing wrong yeah. with that you know matchstick cannons and all that but um but yeah the the actual activation and motivation and morale systems yeah. and motivation however you want to call it that's that's what interests me you know not it's not guys going pew pew pew. It's getting guys to go pew pew pew. If that makes sense. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's the it's more of the human side than it is the the weapon side. Yeah, or, that might be one way of looking at it. Also, actually, um, that's definitely one of the reasons why I like Stargrunt so much is because it is about the person or creature granted official, you know official alien rules never have have yet to come out but uh, maybe with the second edition that John toughly hinted at on people when he was on meeples and Min- miniatures recently will yeah maybe then we'll finally have bugs don't surf the star grunt alien edition <laughs> but uh, it, it's definitely the more interesting part to me now I say that. Uh, basically because I don't want to get into a huge discussion about about those aspects just at this moment. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we probably have room to have multiple discussions on rules development and I definitely think I definitely think that could be a series unto itself. Maybe not a full podcast series, but definitely a series on this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, I have to think about that. Maybe do something just on the turn sequence and uh, you know talk about activation and movement and morale ter- you know terrain effects not just on movement but also on well combat resolution and morale and that sort of thing because I guarantee you you know your morale you know if you're snugged up in a nice <laughs> a nice cozy bunker your morale is going to be a lot different than if you're, you know, you know, if you're crawling towards that four-inch rise in the in the micro terrain just for that little bit more, yeah, well, cover or, that you might be able to get, or you know, the the part of uh, okay, you're 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 not so cozy trench, but at least you're you know hidden from getting shot at, and then uh, the sarge or the colonel comes up and says, okay, up and over. Get out there where you can get shot. Eh, I'm good here, thanks. <laughs> you know, yeah, the, how, how do you go about motivating the troops in yeah. game to? Oh yeah, put their necks Absolutely. out. Absolutely, absolutely. And terrain does have a a significant effect on that. You know, it's you know it's you know it's what they you know they call you know hasty fighting position. You know the the nickname for those, right? I don't remember. Ranger Grave. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, everything at least in basic training in the army is Ranger something. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> now the uh yeah, the hasty fighting position is just a little also known as a shell scrape. It's just you take your e-tool and you dig out a hole that's just deep enough for you to lie down in and just long enough and wide enough for your body to fit and you throw the dirt up in front for a little bit of a parapet and that's it there's yeah. a hasty fighting position and hope they and, don't have mortars and hope they don't have mortars right or at least <laughs> if they do have mortars they don't have proximity fuses 
Right. Well, that's a drag. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hell of a down note to end the episode on. <laughs> So next up on the veteran mortuary is a fair specialist. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I kid, I kid. The mortuary affairs guys, they, they do good work, but anyway. Um so yeah, I think I think there's definitely room for us to discuss these matters more in detail in the future. And I think we could see our way clear of, of doing something like that every I don't know every three months or so. Yeah. see how it goes so as always well actually before we even close out uh, yeah we're gonna have I don't know if I'll be keeping you updated uh, those of you out there listening on the progress on our project whether or not I actually entered it in the war game soldiers and strategy contest I'm using it as an impetus to move forward with what I want to get done because what I want to get done is have it playable by the middle of January for our January game weekend. Uh, Just a reminder, we have uh, my game weekend in July, Jay's July Jamboree every year, and then we've got my brother's game weekend, which is Christopher James, that's his his name, Christopher James January Jamboree, or CJ3. And that is traditionally the what second or third weekend in January. It's whatever weekend Martin Luther King Day is on. Yeah. So whatever that, that weekend Monday is. Yeah. The the weekend prior to that. Right. That's a pretty solid. And mine is normally the weekend closest to my birthday. Right. Is normally when J three is held. So yeah, I want to get it up and running by CJ three. Uh, we'll have. Our free jumper game. We're going to introduce the group to its free jumper. We're going to introduce uh, the group to the skirmish game. Uh, working title for the skirmish game is Desperate Measures. I will tell you that. So I think it's a, I think it's a neat title, and and yeah. we're gonna, we're I think we're gonna have a lot of fun with it. So yeah, and it's uh. It- it seems to be uh, when we announced it to uh, the group uh, for the, the the spaceship game uh, side of things. The the group really latched on to the idea, and, and they seem to be running with it on what they want to use for their spaceship. Yep. 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 So. Yep. No. Yeah. The good thing about that is I put out that hey, you know, just get a matchbox or Hot Wheel sized spaceship. Um, I'm going with the ghost from uh, Star Wars Rebels. Yeah, I'm going with the Tantive Four. Yep. Hey, and they're Corvette. already painted. All we got to do is get them based, get uh, yeah. standardized bases for them. Yep. Uh, yeah, you're definitely going to be seeing more on that in the Twitter and Facebook feeds, and maybe us talking about it as well. So, uh, with that in mind, uh, Chris, thanks for coming on again. Always, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Sure. Uh, sure. Definitely need, to, definitely need to get together more often for some gaming, but and I think our schedules are opening up to the point where we can do that. It definitely, um, definitely. So, for those of you in the United States, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, hopefully, I'm hoping to have this episode published Wednesday night, so you can have it ready to go on as you go across the river and or over the river and through the woods. 
listening as you drive to grandma and grandpa's and or aunt betty's or whoever you're, whoever's house you're going to to uh, slice up a turkey and maybe watch some football and eat one of various types of uh, pies whatever your family's choice is so as always if the war gaming you're having isn't any fun you make it fun that is all